The only constant in business is change. Welcome to Trends, Bends, and Opportunities, the show that explores business ups, downs, and possibilities. I'm Pat Lynch, and I'm a retired police supervisor, and now I teach and mentor real estate agents who are looking to stand out above the rest. My partner is Dr. Lauren Murfield. He's a former college professor who now works with business leaders, small and large, to do what they never thought possible. Together, we're Doc and the Cop, and we're here to help you think bigger, reach higher, and do what you never thought possible in order to deliver disruptive success for today's world. Let's go. Dynamite show today. Can't wait to get into it. A lot of good things coming, but Pat, this Thursday, boy, this is a Hall of Fame week. Not only do we have Joyel today, we have got Dr. David Berman coming back for another appearance, infectious disease doctor out of Johns Hopkins Hospital. And boy, do we need to hear about that as he, these coronavirus uh, numbers have just shot up. We're going to get to hear from him on Thursday. And, you know, I think I feel I'm kind of channeling. Uh, um, Karnak wasn't that Johnny Carson? They could. I think it was Karnak. Yeah. Karnak. Yeah. Anyway, I, I got a feeling he's going to say some really good things on on Thursday, so everybody needs to tune in. And uh, we've got things into next week that are going to be dynamite as well. But before we get in today, Pat, can you tell us about this podcast that I've been hearing about? Another podcast that might even be equally as good? Doc, this one is blowing up the internet and it is amazing. And it is called Trends, Bends and Opportunities. No, it's not. <laughs> it is called Holy Crap. How'd you do that? We got so many podcasts, I can't keep them straight, Doc. It's called Holy Crap. How'd they do that? And it's a podcast on disruptive thinking. And each episode, Doc and I uh, break down uh, just the, the great thought leaders of our time going back 500 years, ahead 50 years, and all over in the, few, in the uh, current times. And uh, we're, we're breaking down some just amazing things and, uh, and learning a lot, sharing a lot. So make sure you tune in. Uh, like, follow, share, send up smoke signals, run a uh, Skyrider plane, whatever it is. Um, you know, write it on your, uh, maybe get a tattoo of it, Doc. There's another idea. And uh, you, know, you know, Pat, we cover from Leonardo da Vinci to SpaceX. So, you know, that's quite a variety. And uh, we got a lot of good ones coming up, too. But I'm excited about today. I, I tell you, since we started this, I've had this program in mind. Can't wait to introduce you to, to Joel Moharan. Um, Pat, you know, there's people that you meet and you go, holy crap, how do they do that? How do they get it all done? How do they get that much done in one day? That's Joel. And what she's doing is just simply amazing. I, I absolutely love the, what she is tackling. And she hasn't let this pandemic slow her down at all. In fact, she's doing just as much as she's ever done. No snow day for her, huh? No snow day. No snow day and no conspiracy theories. I want to introduce everybody to Joyal Mulheron, the founder and executive director of Evermore. Hi, Welcome, everyone. Joyal. Thank you. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Joyal, please tell us what Evermore is. And, and 
what you're working to do with it. Yeah. So um, I stumbled into a very large issue a couple of years ago, didn't quite realize how large it was, um, but have begun looking at bereavement and the state of bereavement care in America today. Um, when I started working on this issue a few years ago, I would wake up in the morning and often there were a series of news articles or news events that had occurred. It was um, Trayvon Martin, Hydea Pendleton, the Hotshot Firefighters, the Washington Mudslide, Sandy Hook, and so forth. And I began realizing, holy smokes, there are all of these families and individuals left behind in these events with little resources or tools to help them cope in the aftermath. There are certainly, if you will, clinical services in, in, in a large regard. Um, so you could maybe go see a therapist if you could afford a therapist, if you could get there, if you had the time, if you knew someone who would take you on because bereavement is a very specialized um, practice and a lot of therapists do not have that distinguishment, if you will. Um, and and the more I sort of looked back and at that problem and realized that this is a huge problem of society, it's completely invisible, and yet it's um, it's everywhere. And so, um, so we've begun. Evermore is dedicated to making the world a more livable place for bereaved families and individuals, and we're looking at this problem as a population health approach, a public health approach, and if you will, an essential element to a comprehensive public health strategy. And so it's not simply that you've lost a loved one, it's all the systems in your community and so forth that you interface with. And so we're really looking at all of those systems in communities. And if you had the good fortune to find someone who could support you, a therapist, we're looking, if you will, at the other 23 hours of the day and what happens to families um, in those exchanges. So it's, you know, it's not just a place, I know there's other places where they can call in and find a therapist, and you're not necessarily that, correct? Correct. We are not a direct service. We don't have support groups. We don't, um, we don't have therapists. We are talking about a population level shift. And so um, one of the things that we've been working on most recently is really educating Congress and trying, if you will, to shed a spotlight on how critical this issue is, even prior to COVID. Um, often, you know, we would go and be meeting with these offices, both on the House and the Senate side, Republican and Democrat, and we'd be talking about the implications of overdoses and of suicide and of mass casualty events. And, you know, really not, if you will, having a triage system for families and individuals to help them cope, get their sea legs back underneath them and get them back into the workforce or back into the school environment, if you will. But why, why is that important? What, why does that matter? I don't know why my camera doesn't come up on screen when I talk, but why is that important? It's important for a host of reasons. So for example, um, I will tell you that I was just looking at a study the other day for bereaved children and 90% of juvenile justice folks who've been detained experience the, the loss of a loved one. Um, the loss of a loved one is not simply, oh, I feel so bad for you. It alters the course of our lives. And there's substantial evidence to, um, 
to demonstrate that that is the case for bereaved children who've lost a parent, particularly um, under the age of when they've lost a parent under the age of 18, for bereaved parents um, when they've lost a child at any age and from any cause, for bereaved spouses. We all know some of the statistics around premature death is one outcome for bereaved spouses. That is true for bereaved parents, for bereaved siblings, and also for bereaved children, but people, um, that is a less, if you will, um, popularized um, factoid. Um, and also bereaved siblings face, um, face substantial life-altering um, events. So for example, a bereaved child um, has lower grades in school, they'll have reduced resilience um, scores, they will fail more grades, they will have more interactions with juvenile justice, they'll have um, psychiatric events, bereaved parents hope uh, bereaved parents have a number of um, health ramifications from uh, premature death to psychiatric hospitalization, substance abuse, cardiac disorders, immune dysfunction, increased dementia, cognitive decline, and more. And so, if you will, we are not we are not thinking about the death itself as an event for an individual. We're seeing those individuals in our juvenile justice. We're seeing them in our doctors or offices or in our emergency rooms, rather than recognizing in the moment that this is a life altering event and how you, for example, as a professional um, and as a former law enforcement official, how you interact with the family in that moment will set them on a short and long-term trajectory for coping. And whether or not it's functional coping or maladaptive coping, if you will. And so how you give death notification is incredibly important. How you interface with the family during a death scene investigation is incredibly important and so forth. So those are the types of systems approaches that we're, if you will, working on and focused on. How do employers welcome back someone to the workforce? Um, what form or if any bereavement leave is offered, for example. So it's those system issues to help the family get those sea legs back underneath them again, get back into the workforce, get back into the classroom and so forth, and, 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 and be able to adaptively process and cope. So it's not just some bleeding heart looking to say, oh, somebody's hurting, but it's really taking more of a corporate mindset and saying this is a public health issue that's costing us as a society and as a world, especially the United States, it's costing us, what, millions and billions of dollars a year? Yeah, at least, if not billions. I mean, I often say um, premature death for parents, children, spouses, and siblings is not a mental health issue. It's not, oh, I feel sorry for you. That is a medical outcome that has been linked back to the death of a loved one. In fact, if you were to look at some population level studies, you'll see that the untimely death of a loved one is the most common traumatic American experience. It is also rated as um, those individuals' worst life experience. And yet, you know, we have as a society, um, you know, really sort of taken the notion of, um, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss and, you know, wanting to be supportive or going to a support group and going to a therapist or bringing food. And those are certainly, if you will, some of the tools in the toolbox. But if that individual loses their job, 
as a result, if the child is failing out of school, if um, the clerical leader in the local um, you know, faith institution says, suicide is an act against God and your child's now going to hell. There is a, if you will, a complete um, loss for that. It's, it's holistic for that individual. And so the, the work that we're doing is really, if you will, submitting that as a modern society, we can evolve practices and supports and policies that can facilitate healthy coping and adaptive processing in, for those families in the aftermath. So, what, so, so what, do you think it, that three days bereavement leave isn't enough? Well, I think it depends but, on- You know, dust yourself off and come right back to work before the end of the week. Sure. Well, um, so I would just say, you know, someone said this to me the other day that um, when you lose someone, it is both common and yet extraordinary. And so I don't want to, if you will, over, um, you know, over-regulate, if you will, for every individual what is appropriate. So we need to be cautious about that. I would say from an employment leave perspective, we've been working on some policies for small, medium, and large businesses and looking, if you will, at the marketplace. Um, I will tell you from a small business perspective, our view is that we ask that small businesses just not fire someone for five days and permit them to come back to work at the end of those five days. When you're a medium employer, we ask that you pay for five days, uh, five days of paid leave, and then come back uh, and then allow them, if you will, excuse me, allow them a second week unpaid if you can afford that and permit them to return after 10 days. And if you're larger, uh, two weeks of paid leave um, and a week of unpaid leave. That actually tracks with some of what's happening in the industry. We're proposing these standards as voluntary standards, um, you know, and to see what, if you will, um, the private sector is willing to adopt. I will say there's, well, let me just add, there's one more recommendation that we, that we suggest and that is you're a business leader and you want to do what you never thought possible, connect with Dr. Murfield at murfieldcoaching.com. That's murfieldcoaching.com. All employers should have a written policy. Um, if you have five or more employees, for example, I mean, obviously, if you if you have a nanny or something like that, and those sort of smaller shops, that's not what we're proposing. Um, but have just something written somewhere for people to be able to refer to. These recommendations, as I was saying, you know, are really tracking with um, what other early adopters in the industry are doing. Um, there is some data out there that says, on average, employers give um, three days of, of, of paid leave. Um, we would hope over time that Department of Labor actually would do um, some research around this issue and really look more holistically rather than um, you know, just solely relying on a trade association study. Um, in my opinion, I've talked to a lot of employers over the last few years, and in many cases, I think they're doing everything they can um, in, in most cases to support their employees. Victoria, I know from the work that my wife and I have done on the ROI of compassion, looking at the numbers there, and uh, 
you know, one of the things that I want to be honest with with the audience that uh, it's almost 13 years ago I lost my youngest son at 22 to suicide. Um, each one of us on this call has lost somebody dear to us. And um, quite frankly, I should have been sequestered for a month. And I, I look around and I say, you know, if somebody has lost an immediate member of the family, I don't know if I'd really want them at work doing anything substantial for at least a week anyway. I don't, I don't think their head would be clear enough. Is, is that what you found as well? Yes. Yes. In fact, um, I would say that I've even talked to employers who's, and, and some of their employees who've had um, particularly very traumatic losses, unexpected traumatic, um, violent or criminal. And in those cases, I have often found, not always, um, but have often found that those employers are doing everything they can to just help, if you will, maintain family stability. Um, because as we all know, it, it's, um, and I think many Americans can relate to this, uh, not just the three of us on this, you know, on this podcast, that, um, you know, life becomes very shaky afterwards. And um, employers, I see them, if you will, as anchor institutions, both for the communities, but also for families. And so um, the way the employer, if you will, interfaces with the family in the aftermath can be absolutely critical in that adaptive processing and functional coping. Well, that's one of the things I like, Doc, with your book that uh, you and your wife put, put out is the ROI of compassion is, okay, if you don't want to do it because it's the right thing to do, do it because it makes financial sense. And maybe some business was on the fence, but now they're not on the fence because they see there's a financial benefit. It's not just a touchy-feely thing showing that we care. There's a, there's a true economic number that goes with that uh, in terms of lost productivity. And for the I hate to say it, for the heartless leader out there, it kind of turns it into, oh, well, shoot, it makes more sense to do it financially than to not do it. And so sometimes that's what it takes to convince people. There's some good data I, out of, I think, Denmark that has looked at stock performance for CEOs with different forms of loss. And um, they were able to correlate, if you will, a direct result of a loss event on corporate performance and um, based on relationship and, and who was lost. Um, so for example, um, when the CEO has, if you will, daily interactions or frequent interactions with their own children or spouses, those types of losses can really be, um, can really even set the stock price, if you will, uh, off on an unstable direction. We had a, a question kind of just switching back to talking about kids that came in from Facebook. Are there subtle early signs in children that we could look out for or should be looking out for before it becomes crisis? So um, I want to be really clear that I'm not a therapist and I'm not a social worker. I am a bereaved mom um, who had other kids um, in the household. So I can tell you from a personal perspective, um, I think it is from, from the child's perspective, there are, you have to be cognizant that there are a number of different ages. There's a number of different types of responses to look at. I would, um, my first go-to, if I knew back then what I knew today, 
my first step would probably be calling um, or Googling a local childhood bereavement center. And those centers, that's all they do all day long for kids. And I would get in contact with someone in one of my local institutions. They're located all over the United States. We also have a grief directory on our website that begin that locates um, resources by state. I would just get on the phone, frankly, or send some emails and start calling people and sharing what your concerns are and talking to those professionals. I think they would lead you in a great direction. I, I, I like your response, and I, and again, appreciate the fact that you know you're just you're just like us, where you're lay people who've who've experienced grief. Um, but really, the key is is there's going to be trauma. There's trauma there somewhere. And if they've experienced a loss, then we really need to get a professional involved, whether they're experiencing signs or not, because, or exhibiting signs or not, because it's coming, right? It's everybody copes a little bit different. That's one of the problems we have with mental health in general is we, we don't want to admit that we all experience it. We don't want to admit weakness. Uh, but really, when with kids, if we know we already know they're going to experience some sort of problems, we might as well get them in and talk with somebody and figure out. And maybe they maybe they don't need quite as intensive of of therapy or whatever. But they but at least they need some interaction with somebody who's professional who can judge it. Absolutely. So um, in in the field generally, particularly for kids, there's something called peer support. And there and this it, this exists for us too. I mean, when you meet someone who's had a similar kind of life experience as you, there's sort of this immediate ability to be able to relate to them. So a lot of these childhood bereavement centers actually have peer support groups where there is someone there who's having, if you will, structured interactions with a group of children so that the, the children know that they're not alone. Um, so when you reach out or you talk to your bereavement centers, I just would say we don't always, to your point, have to go to the clinician. We don't always have to go to sort of, a, you know, the therapist. There might be very good um, outcomes with just a, a solid and well-run peer support group. Um, we didn't talk about this prior to coming on the show, but I know I, I sent you something this weekend that came to my attention because of Father's Day. And it's a website by a gentleman that has lost his, I think he had lost two um, children or, or very early. And it's talking about the father and, and grieving the child. And we don't see, I, I was quite taken by that because we don't see much of that, do we? In, the, in any of the literature, any of the talking. I know when I went through it, it's kind of like, um, you know, you're supposed to be the pillar. You're supposed to be able to do it. Like Pat says, um, you're supposed to be strong. Uh, we can't let you be, let you be weak. And if you, and if you are vulnerable, you're appearing weak. So um, I would totally agree that um, the predominant, when it comes to child death, that the predominant um, literature, if you will, is focused on mothers and, and, and that response. Um, you know, there are severe outcomes for both mom and dad. So um, I will say um, for going back just on premature death, premature death is evidenced for moms and dads as early as age 40 
For mom, it's from death from anything, both natural and unnatural causes. For fathers, it's unnatural causes, which means suicide or an automobile accident, for example, very serious. Um, so um, Kelly, and I'm blinking, Kelly Farley, um, that is um, whose information that you sent me this weekend, he is fantastic. There are a number of different dads, um, if you will, who are doing um, different work in the bereavement field. Kelly is certainly is certainly one of them. And, and he did in fact lose two kiddos um, very early. It's a terrific resource. Yeah. It, and that, the, the number one thing we, we want to get across here are two things. One is that if, if people are suffering, there's resources available for them. And the second thing that you say on your website is, Bereavement care in America is broken. Um, we're not putting it up against any of the others. We know we got problems with racism. We know we have other pro uh, problems with uh, drug abuse and opioids and stuff. But bereavement care, um, you know, I just remember a number of times where people say, I can't imagine. And, you know, after after uh, mass shootings, we hear politicians say, well, our hope, hope, our thoughts and prayers go out to them. Okay, uh, and what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And, and I, I think it's what I call the awkward silence. And, and so I think part of it is awareness that, uh, that we have to work on. It's, it's communication. What do you do? I know your organization is doing some pretty impressive things to, to make things aware and becoming doing advocacy. Can you fill, in, fill us in on what you're doing? Sure. So um, I, we're meeting with um, different offices, um, both Republican and Democrat on the House and Senate side, and just beginning to raise awareness of the issue, sharing with them some of the statistics, thinking about this, um, I apologize. I'm sure you can hear my dogs in the background. Um, I, I can't control that. Um, anyhow, um, we are... Um, I'd kind of like to hear his opinion on that. <laughs> you struck a nerve, uh, Doc. I don't know what it is, but uh, the, the dog did, did not like that response. I don't know what that is. Indeed. Um, so in early, in early January, I began meeting with offices and really talking about this issue and suggested that we needed to attach a no cost provision onto the US budget. So um, there's one bill that Congress has to pass every year and that's the budget. Um, the provision that I've asked for will not cost any money, but for the first time it would require federal health agencies to begin reporting to Congress what they're doing on bereavement, if anything, um, what kind of studies they're doing, what kind of policies they have or programs or so forth. I suspect, I suspect if we're able to get this through the Senate, If you're a Florida real estate agent and you are looking to stand out above the rest, check out Momentum Real Estate at winmomentum.com. That's W-I-N momentum.com.
as of right now, it looks like the House has um, has endorsed the measure, so it should be um, included in the House bill. We'll know in the next few weeks if they did if they did in fact adopt it. Um, and then um, you, the Senate, it will take some time. It's a little it's a little bit more unknown in their process until the very end when the budget comes out, where we actually know. But I I suspect what we'll find is that there's not a lot happening. Um, as it relates to bereavement. And that is problematic for all the reasons that we talked about before. So one of the things that I have been doing lately, I've been talking to a number of different states, a number of different individuals, and just encouraging them to call their delegation, you know, both on the Senate side and on the House side, and pick up the phone and say why you think bereavement is an issue and a public health concern that they should, be, that they should have on their priority list. So if somebody's sitting sitting there today right now and they're saying, wow, I lost, uh, you know, I remember when I lost mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever, a loved one, and said, this sounds like somebody I could really plug in, I, I could really do. You're not asking them to personally go and talk to Congress, right? Or what, what, what would they, how could they fit in? So, um... I am suggesting that it, no, they can pick up the phone and and call their representatives and ask them. Um, you know, I'm very concerned with what's happening with COVID and with overdoses and with suicide and mass casualty events or natural disasters, and what is being offered in my community. What are you bringing home to my community to help our children be successful? To help you know the bereaved spouses and so forth to be success successful. That just making the call is incredibly powerful. I will say this is a, a statistic from years ago. I, I live outside of Washington. I didn't work on Capitol Hill, but um, I do know that for many years it was for every one caller, there were that represented at least a hundred other constituents. So you can see if you get 15 people to call one office, that office is suddenly thinking, oh, this is at least 1,500 of my voters. And so they begin to pay attention in a different way. I'll tell you, on the House side, the way we got this provision, I won't go into all the mechanics, but the way this provision even came to fruition is a bereaved mother from Austin, Texas, um, called her delegate Lloyd, um, Representative Lloyd Doggett, and said, I think bereavement is an issue. And she articulated why she felt that way. And um, she came home that night and, and, and she reflected on it and decided that she wanted to give the office a call again the following, the following day. And so she did. And she she called me in between and she said, oh, I've been talking to the staff and they're really interested in listening. And after her second call, she explained to her surviving daughter what she had done and her surviving daughter said, way to go, mom, like way to fight the fight for us. Like no one is listening to the sister and you should do that. So after her daughter did that, she picked back up the phone and called Lloyd Doggett's office and was basically like, I'm not leaving until you champion this issue. There is, this is that important. And if you will, she had this newfound energy, which I even said to her, she's, she's um, a gregarious person, but I wouldn't at all, I, I would never define her as assertive or even really aggressive, if you will. But she was just fearless and approaching the office and um, 
you know, with, with two days before the appropriations deadline, um, Lloyd Doggett's office picked up the issue and we were able to run it through the house quickly. And, um, and that's how it got attached. And so, um, so anyhow, I would just say that there are, um, you know, not to, not to diminish, if you will, um, your power as an individual sitting um, in, you know, in, in, in the chair listening, listening to this. Um, if you Google, and I don't know the, um, I don't know, I'm looking it up quickly. I don't know the hotline to Congress, um, but I can give it to you right now. If you have the name of your delegate, you merely have to call 202-224-3121. And that is the capital switchboard and they will, they'll patch you through to whomever um, you want. So I'll just say that number one more time. It's 202-224-3121. And talking to your delegates about why this is an important issue to you, they'll listen. And, and we're at a time where I feel like they're listening differently to people. And why is that? Because, because of the coronavirus? I do, and I think um, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think there's the coronavirus. Suicide is at its highest rate in 50 years. Um, you know, there's a seven. There was a 76% increase in child suicide between um, the years 2011 and 2017. Homicide is very high in particular communities. I mean, these congressional offices they see the ramifications of this, and yet if you will, those, the, the recognition now that this is an issue needs to translate into CDC needs to be collecting data on this. We need to have programs available for people, regardless of who you lost, when you lost them or how you lost them. So I often say, for example, um, you know, if you're a mom in inner city Chicago who's lost a son to homicide, the programs that you have access to should look differently than the family who's lost their farming father to suicide in rural Montana. Um, yes, there are symmetries within the program, but individuals need to have different access points, if you will, and different, there are different needs for these different people who are lost and the different causes of death. Those are the types of things that we're suggesting. In addition to that, and going back to Pat's background, it's giving tools and resources to law enforcement officials so that they, they understand that when they're going into a death scene investigation or into um, to give death notification, how, how we act as professionals in that moment can make all the difference for the families. It's amazing when you like, like work in a death scene and you're, you see the funeral home people, they've got this down pat. Right, because they're like, you know, hey, where would you, you know, you're, you're, you know, what would you like, you know, us to do with mom or mother or whatever, and and the police and the and the ambulance people, the fire department people are all talking about the body, you know, but to the to the funeral home people, it's mother or you know, wh where would you like us to, what you know, would you, you know, is there, you know, what would you like us to do with your, we're going to pick up your son and and we're going to bring your son to you know, our facility and we're, you know, we're going to take good care of them. And, you know, and they even, you know, they put a pillow under their head. And, and of course, part of you says, wow, what do they need a pillow for? But it's to show that compassion and to show that, that, that mercy that, that, 
hey, these people are going through a hard time. And that's not just a body. That's their, their loved one there. And uh, it's, it's horrible. You know, sometimes we, we don't even think of what the words, uh, I know Doc did his dissertation on the power of words to build or destroy. And even the simplest of words at a crime, at a, at a death investigation can really, you know, set things off. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And just because, you know, for example, um, you know, it's maybe another death scene, another for a law enforcement official, it is the first time for these, often for these families that they're interfacing in these events. And just because your child dies, for example, doesn't mean your parenting stops. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and it's true for all the other relationships. In doing this, I've, I've talked to hundreds or thousands of people who've been so kind in sharing their personal experiences. And when you really take a step back and you, and you look and you really listen to how as a society we are just responding, um, not intentionally malicious, but we have these practices or policies in place that um, just, again, just make that coping all the more difficult. I, I think we're just not recognizing the severe ramifications that come from a bereavement experience. And mm -hmm. how frankly our role is so important to how these families, you know, move forward or not. And an example of that. So um, it was stillbirth or infant death in hospitals. Um, mothers are not often co they're often co-located in the same maternity ward. So they'll talk about all the other crying children that that they can hear, but they don't have a crying child, or they weren't offered preventative lactation therapy, and so then their milk comes in, and you know some will want to donate it, but others talk about like this is very painful. I, I can't do this right now, um, and so there are lots and lots of different practices like that. There are practices right now that the federal government is is promoting. Um, one of those that I have some concern about is um, through CDC. They promote um, when when there's been an unexpected infant death in a family, these are largely sleep-related deaths, um, that the family is to reenact the death event with a fabric baby doll within hours of the death itself while being photographed by police. Um, and, and in their promotional materials, they talk about that this yields surprisingly positive results for families to which we could find no evidence of that. And I would submit to someone, imagine on the day that you've lost your child, now the law enforcement's coming in, now you're reenacting the death event, um, now you're being photographed, there's all the clicking, families talk about the flashing of the lights, um, Sometimes it does, you know, the medical examiner doesn't show up right away. I've had families and the baby's there for six to eight hours and law enforcement has these folks sequestered. And then if you have another child, CPS comes in and launches an investigation on you. And so, and those things take months. And so we've even had families, you know, who, um, when the ME, the medical examiner comes back and says it was a natural death, we don't understand, um, you know, why your son died then the CPS people say, well, I know that the ME says that you're, but we still have our investigation that we have to continue. So we can't, we have to keep coming and investigating you. In the interim, the employer says, why the heck aren't you happy? Like, so, so then the family loses, I, I mean, these are not, these are not made up stories. These, these are things that families, you know, report. And so, you know, I ask, 
are there ways, if in fact we find that doll reenactments are absolutely pivotal for the dusting investigations and, and so forth, or for the public health, um, for public health purposes, how do we do these things or when do we do them? That we are also acknowledging that we might be causing severe additional victimization, if not trauma, onto these families. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it, it's just horrible thinking of that whole CDC type of thing. I, I, I can't imagine being a parent in that situation. I know our time is running really quick, short here, but um, are you finding more reception among Democrats or Republicans? No, I'm both. Both are very interested. Um, I have, you know, it, it, it has been such, if you will, I feel like I've just had this heartwarming moment as an American that I'm able to sit with these different offices and have just such genuine and sincere conversations with them. They get it. It's not about what party affiliation are you? It's not about what, what chamber you sit in. It's just a human issue. And at the end of the day, it touches almost every American household. I think these, these offices, back to your question earlier, Lauren, it's not just about COVID. Um, it is also that we can, you know, with, with the onset of, you know, tools like this, Facebook Live, these folks can reimagine what our experiences could look like because we've made so many advances in social innovation or communications and so forth. So there's a great deal of, of, of hope that I have um, and that I, that I um, garner from these conversations with these, with these folks, with these staff. Be sure to like, follow, and share us wherever you're tuned in today. has flown by, Doc. Oh, it always does with fantastic guests. Today is no different. It's exactly. Um, Pat, do you have any comments before we, we wrap this up? No, I'm trying to get back to my screen that I opened up just so I could. No, I just want to, Joyelle, it's been a pleasure uh, talking. I know Doc's going to say goodbye here in a second, but uh, uh, certainly I hope folks have learned a lot today. Um, and we do this each Tuesday and Thursday live here on Facebook with a special guest. Um, but this isn't just for entertainment. Um, we're trying to change the world. Um, and uh, there's challenges in everything. And we're talking, been talking about the challenge of bereavement today. But with challenges come opportunities. And before we say goodbye, uh, Doc, why don't you give our listeners a challenge for the day? Be glad to. I, I just want to take a moment and say to Joyelle, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, I just, uh, we can't do enough to get your message out there, um, to really connect people because this is huge, huge. This is a public health issue. It's not some liberal trying to shove something down our throat that, you know, some bleeding heart, not at all. This is saying, this is a bipartisan, this is a human problem. And with that, uh, I want to, uh, I want to issue a challenge. Each time we I want to issue a challenge based on thinking bigger, to reach higher, to do the impossible. I want us to think bigger. And we can bring in the other events that have gone on, the racial unrest, the mask or no mask. You know, it comes down to compassion. And you, you've heard, I've got three books out there that deal with this. You can even 
lady and uh, some of you more are listening. It's about understanding, it's about noticing and feeling the other person's pain from their perspective. Stop and understand the pain, especially the pain of death. It doesn't end with the funeral. It doesn't end because you're done thinking about it. It lasts for days and weeks and months and years. And when, when you lose someone really close, I would argue you never forget. And too many times it, it damages lives because we as a society are not handling it correctly. There's a better way. When we think about it, there's usually a better way. I'm gonna challenge you to be more compassionate, to consider the other person's pain. I'm gonna challenge you to, to look into this number, 202-224-3121 for the Capital Switchboard. Get in contact with your representative because this is a human problem. It crosses all boundaries, all boundaries. I want you to think bigger to reach higher and together, maybe we can eliminate some of the deaths. Maybe we can, we'll cut back on the negative consequences. And together, when we work together as good people, we will do great things. And with that, thank you again, Joelle. Folks, tune in on Thursday when we got Dr. David Berman again talking about being compassionate, wearing masks, washing your hands, staying socially distanced, so we can get through this issue. With that, Pat and Joelle, we like to say goodbye with our jazz hands because we can't shake hands. That's our so thanks again. Thank you, Joelle. Thanks for everybody. See you on Thursday. Thanks, Joelle. You can connect with us directly at TotalCareerGrowth.com. That's TotalCareerGrowth.com.